We all come in from many different places this morning, but you know this, and you know where we need to be by your grace, and so we ask you to come and do this, and that as we go from this place, our, our memory of it would be, Lord, you are good, and you are faithful, and thank you, Lord. So we ask these things, that you might be glorified, because you are worthy, and we love you. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Continuing our series in the Sermon on the Mount, this wonderful sermon that Jesus gave, talking about life in the kingdom, what it looks like to walk with God, to know God, to walk in His ways, to live under the King, King Jesus. He gives us much wonderful teaching. And here in this last section of chapter 5, in verse 43, He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5, 43 to 48. I'd like to ask you to do something as we start this message. I want you to call to mind an enemy. You might be thinking, I don't really have an enemy. I don't fight in the military. I'm not on the political, in the political arena. I don't have an enemy. Well, an enemy really is somebody who opposes you in some way. Someone who opposes you and somehow works against your good or somehow works against the good of your loved ones. That's really what an enemy is. Someone who opposes you in some way. So as we go into this section of scripture, I want you to recall some enemy. Most likely, everybody here would have somebody in that category, to varying degrees, of course, but somebody. Maybe that enemy is, maybe it's someone as close as a spouse or a family member, maybe an ex-spouse, maybe a boss at work or an employee or a co-worker. Maybe, sadly, a former pastor or a church member. Maybe uh, someone at school. Maybe it's a sibling or some relative. Maybe it is a political opponent or a military opponent of some sort. I do know someone who was, who's lost their father in 9-11. So for that person, it might be someone like Osama bin Laden, very personal. Is there someone in one of these categories that comes to mind who somehow brought harm to you or to your loved ones, somehow actively opposed you or is opposing your good? And as you listen to this message, I just want you to have that person in mind. I don't want that to be distracting for you, but I just want you to have that person there. Because we don't want, it, this, we don't want this message to be a hypothetical message because it's God's truth, and it's very practical and very real for us. And the reality is, I think for all of us, there's somebody we can probably put in that category. So as we look at this, I want you to just remember that person and trust in God to bring 
uh, bring change in our lives through that. This teaching Jesus is bringing in it is very much like the previous teachings, the previous sections. What Jesus is doing in chapter 5, much of chapter 5, is he's bringing correction to understanding of the word. There were certain teachings that were out there that were based on the word, but they were improper or incorrect in some way. There was something twisted or something added. And so he says again and again, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. He's not introducing something new, uh, uh, changing Scripture in some way, he's actually coming to correct a wrong understanding of Scripture, to correct their wrong understanding and bring truth, to, to correct it and to deepen it. And, and much of the teaching is really uh, can be related directly to the Ten Commandments. He's looking back at, at these commandments, and he's bringing correct understanding. And so we see that here. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He is offering a correction, which is really a radically different alternative to a common teaching they would have had in that day. And really, it's contrary to the Old Testament itself. If we look through the Old Testament, there's much in the Old Testament about loving our enemies. We have some verses to show. Leviticus 19 we, we probably are familiar with this one. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. We, we know that one. And, and, and those who are listening to Jesus might say, well, yeah, I'm doing that. That's not talking about my enemies. But if they just looked further down in Leviticus, in verses 33 to 34, they would see, When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. Non-Israelites, people outside the family of God, they were to treat as themselves as well. You should love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Elsewhere, Exodus 23, 4 speaks directly about enemies. If you meet your enemy's ox, this is an agrarian culture, so they have oxes and donkeys and stuff. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. You are to treat your enemy like your neighbor. Clear in Scripture. It's there. So where did they get this idea that you're supposed to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Where do they get that? Well, there are some things in Scripture that, that do talk about this. And they misunderstood those things. And what I want to do is just take a little bit of time and look at those things so we understand ourselves and we don't misunderstand like they did. So you can look in Scripture and, and see that there is something, there are things in Scripture that speak of the enemies of God. There, It speaks of those who are opposed to God. They are real enemies of God. And it does speak, in, when talking of these people, in a very firm way, even using the word hate. Now, we, when we use the word hate, we tend to think of this malicious, angry, nasty thing. When, when God speaks of hating things, it's pure and just and right opposition to that which is wrong and evil. So as we look at these verses, have that in mind. See, God is good and gracious, but He's not some indulgent Santa Claus that just turns a blind eye to any and everything. He's holy. He's good. He's right. And and someone who is good and right does not ignore things that are evil. 
and overlook them. A good person addresses evil, and therefore a good God, taking that argument, we, we know that a good God must address evil. He's not an indulgent Santa Claus. He's holy. He's just. And Scripture teaches us He will deal with every speck of injustice in the universe. So in Scripture, it does talk about God hating sin and hating His enemies. Psalm 139, verses 21 to 22, I think we can put up. This is a psalm. The psalmist is speaking, and he says, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Wow. Maybe that was their scripture reference for saying it was okay to love your neighbor and hate your enemies. How do we, how do we handle this? In our culture, that concept is very foreign to us. Whoa. Perhaps right now you're thinking, whoa. I didn't know that verse was in the Bible. That, that there's a psalm that speaks of hating God's enemies. These psalms, there's a number of them. They're called imprecatory psalms. You don't need to remember that word. It just means psalms that, that are praying a sort of curse on somebody. And there's a number of these psalms that are that way. And when it speaks of these enemies in these psalms, it's not speaking of the sort of enemies that maybe we think of. It's not addressing somebody that happens to cut us off in traffic. You don't have someone cut you off in traffic and then start praying an imprecatory psalm on them. I hate these enemies with a pure hatred. That's not who it's speaking about. It's not speaking about the boss who kept you from getting that Christmas bonus. We don't read Psalm 139 and pray over our boss, an imprecatory psalm, or the neighbor who, who put up the fence on your property line, on your side. You know, you don't, you don't go out in front of his house and start praying the imprecatory psalms over your neighbor. That's not the sort of enemy that the imprecatory psalms are speaking to. I don't believe they're even the sort of enemies that we see in history have done great evil, like a criminal or even a, an evil despot like Hitler isn't necessarily on that list, though I think to some degree we can put him on that list. We don't know for sure. The enemies of God are those that resolutely and really irretrievably oppose God and his ways. And when the Psalms speak these ways, they're spoken. These Psalms are written by the king. They're written by David or somebody in that place of authority. And they're speaking really judgment against those who would resolutely oppose God and his ways. See, God, again, is holy and just. And there are those that oppose him and his goodness. And he will deal with such people. In a sense, we can, we can use the word hate. For us in our culture, it might not be the best word, but, but God does hate his enemies. He, he does eventually deal with his enemies, the ones that are resolutely opposed to him, irretrievably opposed to him and his ways, the ones who would do evil and spurn him. But that's something he does at the end. Ultimate judgment at the end. He will deal with his enemies. So these imprecatory psalms are really speaking of that sort of pronouncement that really is reserved for the king and those under his authority at the very end. And we live in a time where God's heart is one of mercy and grace to any and all who would turn and receive his terms of forgiveness and reconciliation. 
God is able to love his enemies and hate them at the same time in this time. John Stott, in speaking of this reality, this truth that God is holy and will deal with his enemies at the end of time and yet loves them and is merciful, uh, says the following. I think we have a quote. So there is such thing as perfect hatred, just as there is such thing as righteous anger. But it is a hatred for God's enemies, not our own enemies. It is entirely free of all spite, rancor, and vindictiveness, and is fired only by love for God's honor and glory. It finds expression now in the prayer of the martyrs from Revelation 6. The prayer of the martyrs who have been killed for the word of God and for their witness. And it will be expressed on the last day by the whole company of God's redeemed people who, seeing God's judgment come upon the wicked, will concur in its perfect justice and will say in unison, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for His judgments are true and just. Amen. Hallelujah. So God is a holy God and there are enemies that He has. But that's not, that's not the sort of enemy that was going on with the people who listened to Jesus. And it's not the sort of enemy for us right now. And so Jesus brings this teaching to those who would take the imprecatory psalms and take this concept and make it something that we do with our kind of run-of-the-mill everyday enemies. Now, God forbid those enemies might, if they continue in their sin, if... And, if it's a sin against God, may end up as ultimate enemies of God. But our disposition to them is not to be one of hatred, but mercy. Jesus is addressing those who would think it was okay to love their friends, but hate their enemies. And the reality is for us, though, as we hear that statement, as we hear Jesus saying, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. As we hear that, we think, no, that's repulsive. I would never do that. But if you're really honest and think about it, don't we have a double standard? One for our friends, one for our enemies. Don't we treat those that are closest to us with love and mercy and kindness and consideration? But that boss or that neighbor or that person who is in your mind as your enemy, we treat somehow differently in a sense we actively we we functionally do hate them i think it may be through active opposition to them maybe we gossip about them maybe maybe we complain about them maybe we insult them or maybe we just simply neglect them we don't think of them we ignore them i would submit that that is loving your neighbor and hating your enemy. And I would submit that we are all guilty of it. So as we come before the Lord in his teaching today, we come before him, I believe, guilty of doing this. Yet he has a cure for us. He has a cure for us. He gives the correct teaching. He says, you've heard that it was said this, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then Jesus gives the foundational truth to this command. He gives the foundational truth that makes all the difference between hating our enemies and praying for them and loving them. He says in verse 45, So that you may be sons of your Father 
who is in heaven. And at the end of the section, 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The foundation for loving our enemies is the fact and truth that God himself loves his enemies. And if we are to be his sons and daughters, if we belong to him, if we have experienced his love, if we've tasted of his goodness and mercy, then we must be like him. We must love our enemies as he does. This is so important. This is also important for, for this teaching. This is also important really for, for all of the commandments of God. All the things he calls us to do. They are all based on who he is. They are all based on his goodness and glory. His commandments are not just lists of rules that are out there just because he thought it would be kind of good to keep things in order somehow, though that might be part of it. That's not why the commandments of God are there. The commandments of God are there because they're expressions of his character, who he is and what he's like in his goodness and glory. And they are calls to his people to be like him, to be like him. And they flow from a living and real relationship with him. There's no obeying God truly and fully without knowing God and experiencing God. And this commandment to love our enemies is a ridiculous commandment if there isn't a real relationship with a God who loves his enemies. There's only conviction and condemnation if there isn't the knowledge and experience of a God of grace and mercy and power to make us like him. It is oh so important for us to understand this. This is not, the the Sermon on the Mount is not a sermon of some higher moral plane or some superior ethical system. It's a sermon of truth and commandments that flow from knowing a God who is great and glorious and near. To know Him, to know Him is to have everything transformed. To have all our ethics turned upside down and fulfilled in a way that's glorious and good. To know God is to be radically changed by Him. It makes me think of uh, a number of families in our church. Uh, I'm very grateful and very, very thrilled that there are a number of families in our church that have adopted children. And I know some of the stories for some of the children, they have come from backgrounds that at at times have been neglectful or even abusive. And life before being adopted for them was often difficult and even a dangerous life. But as they are now adopted, as they are now chosen and loved children by their parents, everything is different for them. They are safe. They are secure. They are loved. They are appreciated. Life is different. It may take some time for adopted children to adjust to new life. They can bring in from their former situation a a way of looking at life. They live in a place that's neglectful and dangerous, and often it takes them a while when they come under their new family to get used to parents that are actually kind and patient and considerate, and there's behaviors often that are there that take time to to be overcome. But they are 
brought into this new situation where they are safe and secure, loved and appreciated. So it is with us. So it is with all those who would know the Lord, who would respond to Him in faith and repentance. We are brought from a place that's dangerous and empty to a new place where we are under the fatherly, loving rule of God. And everything is different. We are safe and secure. We are loved and appreciated. We are being transformed to be like a family member, to belong to the family of God, to be under the King, Jesus, is to have everything changed, everything different, to be transformed by this truth. So the Sermon on the Mount is about life in this new family. It's about life in the kingdom and the difference that is, that that makes for us. So as we go through this, we we need to hear this point. And and if there's anything from this series, anything from this message today, we're going to remember, let it be this. Let it be this truth, that, that life in the kingdom is radically different because it's life in the king and knowing the king who is good and glorious and gracious. So Jesus bases this call to love our enemies on the reality that that's what God is like. And Scripture is full of these truths about His love for His enemies, His love for for all His creation. Those that love Him, those that trust Him, and those that reject Him. He loves everybody. He blesses everybody. He cares for everybody. Now, again, He doesn't do that without discernment, without holiness, but He is so gracious and so kind. So Psalm 145 says, The Lord is good to all and has mercy. His mercy is over all that He has made. Later, the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desires of every living thing. As Paul came and preached the gospel to people who were, who had, who were uh, Gentiles, had grown up apart from the revelation of God's word, he speaks to them, he says, Yet, speaking of God, he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. God's goodness... It's all over creation, even on those that hate him and oppose him. He is gracious and faithful. Jesus says he makes the the sun shine on both the evil and the just. He causes the rain to fall on both of them. He's faithful to do these things, to provide. And, And the list could go on and on. Food, clothing, shelter, families, love, a good economy, a, a good government, warm, warm days. Recently, we had the privilege of going to Naples, Florida. And sorry, if you, I don't mean to make you jealous. If I know it's cold out, and that's not why I'm bringing this up. And, and uh, it was really nice, though, to be there. It was really warm. So. <laughs> we had some pre-flights, and we had a, a relative we got to stay with, so we had a wonderful short time, about four or five days. And it was so nice to be there in the warmth. It was 80 degrees and sunny. It was really nice. And uh, we went swimming. It was great. Um, and I, just one of the things as I was there was just, um, just aware of the goodness of God. You know, you have those moments where you can just go through the motions and, and not have your eyes open. But there are times when your eyes are open. And, and I was spending time in Psalm 103, and, and uh, the Lord was just speaking about His character. And I was just aware in a, in a way that maybe uh, was greater than my normal awareness my normal awareness isn't necessarily very good. And I was just aware of his goodness. 
here we were on this trip. It was a free trip, basically, for us to, to just have some time to recharge our batteries in Florida. And I was spending time in Psalm 103 and just meditating and thinking about the truths there. And it's a psalm that's just great. Uh, it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. And this verse in particular spoke to me. Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. And I was just aware of God's constant goodness to me in many ways. Sunshine and beaches being part of that for that time. And just that He satisfies us with good things, blessings, things that are, that are not compromised and corrupt and evil, but he, he pours out good things. There's no reason for us to, to run to idols. It's foolishness. God is faithful to satisfy us with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles, it says. And I was just aware of his goodness to me. And then the, the thought I had this week as I was preparing is, you know what? I wasn't the only one on that beach experiencing goodness. Now, by God's grace, He's worked in my life and put faith there, put my faith in the Lord, and I, God counts me righteous in that. I'm glad for that. But there were people on that beach, I imagine, who, who had no desire for God. Probably, I don't know, but probably there were people there who even the idea of God was repulsive, who were probably even actively His enemies in some way. I don't know. I don't know the people that were there. Yet the sun was shining on them too. The beach was beautiful for them too. The water was reasonably warm for a New Englander. For them, too, in the 60s. I, we went swimming. It was in the 60s. No one else was in the water almost. But, but all those things were for, their, for them, too. Beautiful houses. All these things. And those things are not there just by coincidence. God didn't wind the clock up and just let it happen. The, the Scripture teaches us that He presides over His creation. And the reason that Naples, Florida is a beautiful place is because God is a good God. And the reason that people can walk down the street and enjoy all the good things there is because He's good to the righteous and the unrighteous. His friends and His enemies. This is fundamental to God's character. It's who He is. And to know Him is to be like Him. And we see most eloquently, most dramatically, His love for His enemies in the cross of Christ. Most importantly, most dramatically, Romans 5, verse 6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us when we had done nothing and couldn't do anything to truly merit His favor. He set His affections on us 
and determined that Christ would die for us as his enemies, for any and all who would respond to him. He died. He gave his son for his enemies. If God were a God that loved his neighbors and hates his enemy, he would never have done that. He would have just ended the whole thing. But he gave his most precious, most worthy possession for his enemies. He did not neglect his enemies. He did not spurn his enemies. He gave His Son for His enemies. Jesus is the ultimate example of God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Spirit, loving His enemies. And we see that. Even on the cross, Christ is having mercy and praying for His enemies. John Stott again says, Jesus seems to have prayed for His tormentors, actually while the iron spikes were being driven through His hands and feet. Indeed, the imperfect tense, the tense of the verb, suggests that he kept praying, kept repeating his entreaty, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If the cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayer for his enemies, what pain, pride, prejudice, or sloth could justify the silencing of ours? If he would pray for his enemies on the cross, then how can we not, as we behold him and know him, do the same for our enemies? To know God is to be like him in these ways. To be truly a daughter or son of the Father is to be like him. And it is a startling contradiction to claim him as Father, yet not love our enemies like He does. We are called to this because it is who God is. A reason for us to love our enemies. Also, Jesus talks about in this verse, we are called to this, we are called to a higher standard. He goes on in verse 46, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? We are to love our enemies like God does. It is really nothing special to love your neighbors and, and that's it. There's nothing special about that. Jesus is basically saying even the vilest person with the lowest ethics knows how to love their friends. There's nothing ultimately different and radical about loving those who love you. Tax collectors do that. Now, if you work for the IRS, Jesus isn't talking about you here. And that day, a tax collector was, was somebody that had uh, rejected the ways of God, pretty much, who worked for the hated Romans and who pilfered and extorted money from the subjects. They worked for this illegal government and they stole from the people. And they lived a lifestyle that went with that of opposing God in his ways. The best equivalent I think we could have today, there are probably a number of them, but it would be like being a drug-dealing gangster or a porn movie producer, something like that, where your profession is, is, is inherently, inherently opposed to God in his ways. And so Jesus is saying, hey, 
Gangster drug dealers know how to be good to their boys, don't they? There's nothing special about being kind to your friends and yet hating your enemies. The most ruthless drug dealing gangster knows how to do that. He says that even the Gentiles know how to greet their friends. The Gentiles being those that have no knowledge and no interest in God, that live apart from Him. These guys know how to do this thing. Guys, you are to be radically different than they are. That's a good thing they love their friends. Nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing. But we are to be radically different than they are because we know a radically different God who loves His enemies. We're to be like Him. Alfred Plummer says... Commentary author Alfred Plummer says, To return evil for good, to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. It's God's way. So, what about us? Do we feel good about ourselves because we love our neighbors, our friends? Well, that's a good thing, but is that all we do? Jesus says we are to be kind to our enemies. We are to greet those. We are to pray for those who persecute us. And that might be the best place to start. As you think about your enemy, as you recall to mind that person we started out with, maybe a good place to start is to pray for them. John Stott and According a lot from him, he has a wonderful commentary on this section of Scripture. Speaks about this. There's a wonderful thing that happens when we pray. Often as we pray for people, we may not really have a heart for them. We may even hate them. But as we begin to pray, often God works on our heart and softens us. And so he says it's impossible to pray for someone. We have a quote to put up. For someone without loving him. And impossible to go on praying for him without discovering that our love for Him grows and matures. We must not therefore wait before praying for an enemy until we feel some love for Him in our heart. We must begin to pray for Him before we are conscious of loving Him. And we shall find our love break first into bud, then into blossom. So maybe that's where we start, praying for our enemies, asking God to soften our hearts, asking God to work in their lives. Now, Jeff did a wonderful job last week of qualifications and all this. It, it doesn't mean we endorse their evil behavior in any way. It doesn't mean we turn a blind eye. It doesn't mean that we even go to the authorities when needed. That's not what this is saying. So we don't want to, we don't want to hear what it's not saying. Those qualifiers are to be understood. Yet even in those things, if we are like God, if we've encountered His life, there's the ability to truly pray for them and their good to truly want their good. We are called to be like God. And if the band could begin to come up as we finish. Jesus finishes this section. He says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The perfection He calls for in that isn't the perfection of an infinite God. In other words, you need to be an infinite, omnipotent God. The word perfect really could be translated, you are to be holy, you are to be fully and completely good, like your heavenly Father is perfect, like He's good 
and holy. He finishes this section, and really I think this statement at the end of chapter 5 actually applies to all the previous sections. Not just in terms of loving our enemies, but also blessing instead of retaliating. Also speaking truthfully and plainly. Also upholding and loving marriage and purity. Also putting away anger. All these things. The call is to be perfect, like our Heavenly Father is perfect. To be like Him through Christ and the power of the Spirit. You see, as we come to Him, as we recognize that, you know, Lord, the reality is that I don't love my enemies. As we, as we are convicted and we re- realize our desperate need for forgiveness in Christ and new life, He meets us. I want to encourage you, if you are here and you're listening to this and you're aware, you're very aware perhaps, of how you fall short. Not to, to stay in that place. We need to recognize how we fall short, but God's desire is that we run to Him. And if you perhaps have lived your life apart from depending on His kingship and His forgiveness, right now is a great time to say, Lord, forgive me. Lord, I, I, want, I want to follow you. I want to turn from all that stuff. I want to put my faith in you. You can do that right now. and Respond to him. And just say those things in your heart to him. Say, I want you to be my king. I want you to rescue me. And I want you to give me power. And he will do that. Maybe you were the guy that fit the description of the man with the son who had problems his whole life. Maybe you've been in that place. Jesus says, come to him. He's able. All things are possible with him. So come to him and trust him. And he will meet you. Scripture teaches us when we come to him, when we belong to him, as we place our faith in him, turn from our sins, the spirit of God dwells in us. And there's new power, new life to say yes. He gives us power in the Spirit. He gives us His truth so that we can be perfect. We can be like Him more and more and more. To know Him is to be like Him. There's no room for a lax morality in the kingdom of God. But it is not a morality that is a moralism that just means going through the motions. It's, a, it's an ethic. It's a goodness. It's an obedience to His commands that comes from a living relationship with Him. And he invites us to that again. So right now, before we go into our closing song, I just encourage you maybe just to close your eyes and and think about that enemy that we thought of earlier in the time. And ask the Lord to give you help to love that enemy. Perhaps even right now, just pray for that enemy. Let's Let's take a minute to do that or so, and then we'll finish in song.